Gracious God, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be acceptable unto you, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. Okay, now let's get all the lights off up here, Jeanette. Got a few visuals. Many of you have seen the movie The Princess Bride, right? Anybody seen Princess Bride? And the battle of wits in The Princess Bride. This scene begins with an overconfident character named Vizzini who's kidnapped the love buttercup of a man named Wesley who is about to rescue her. I'm going to show this scene. Arrest assured in this scene, it's pure comedy. Nothing happens to the woman who appears to be in, in danger here. We play this for comic value. Ever heard of Plato, Aristotle, Socrates? Yes. Morons. <laughs> now there's confidence, huh? Now, you may be wondering, in addition to uh, having a few chuckles over that, what on earth does this have to do with, with our lesson from the book of Acts? Well, funny you should ask. It seems that the Apostle Paul, who wrote much of the New Testament, found himself in Athens to engage in a battle of wits with the local Athenians. And yes, Athens was the very place that the morons, Plato, Socrates, and Aristotle, lived, taught, and debated, as evidenced in this famous uh, painting by Raphael, where Plato and Aristotle are debating, surrounded by a crowd. And they often did so, these philosophers and their disciples, right where our story takes place today, at the Areopagus, interesting name, which is on top of a famous hill in Athens called Mars Hill, which is located right beneath the Acropolis. And there you see people gathered at the, uh, on Mars Hill. Now, the Areopagus was a place where the elders of the city uh, ruled and held councils and where people gathered on a daily basis to discuss and debate philosophy and religion, much as I'm sure those tourists are doing on that day. Now, while it is doubtful uh, many Athenians referred to Plato, Aristotle, and Socrates as morons, there were many Athenians who, uh, like Vizzini, from the Princess Bride were, well, how shall we put it, quite confident in their intellectual abilities. And as this uh, traveling evangelist named Paul came to town and started telling everyone about the God who became human and taught and lived and eventually died and uh, rose again, well, let's just say that many Athenians engaged Paul in a battle of wits over what he was suggesting and a lively debate. It says in our text that some essentially laughed at him and called him a babbler, is the translation, a babbler, sort of like calling him a hick. Others, though, took Paul seriously. Now, Athens may have been the artistic, philosophical, and even religious capital of the world, but they were not very familiar with this new religion from the Jewish world called Christianity. And clearly, some were intrigued enough that they wanted to hear more. 
So Paul was invited to the Areopagus to expound upon and defend his beliefs. Athens, like most of the rest of the world, believed in many gods, a belief system commonly referred to as polytheism. The Apostle Paul, however, espoused what is commonly referred to as monotheism, proclaiming only one God above all others. In fact, for Paul, there were no others. No doubt the Athenians were intrigued by Paul's message. How could there possibly be just one God? But wouldn't he be outnumbered? All kinds of questions uh, come to mind uh, uh, as the comic shows the conundrum. But that was only part of the fascination, I'm sure. Most religions at that time were heavily, shall we say, influenced, if not completely created, by human interest and imagination. Gods who were seen as powerful and whose favor could be cultivated to gain some earthly advantage. And Athens, there's the pantheon of uh, the Greek mythological gods. Athens was known far and wide for its many, many gods and for its citizens, most of whom believed in almost all of them. And so you had not only the Greek gods, you had various quick-fire gods for immediate relief. You had gods for the needy, gods of ecstatic indulgence, gods of nationalism, gods of agriculture, gods to keep the poor happily poor, gods of gold, silver, and stone, etc., etc. So these gods were all about power and delivering positive results according to human agendas, that is, if people were able to appease them to get what they wanted or needed. But the idea <laughs> that they were hearing now from Paul of a crucified God, especially the one and only God above all others, was very, very, well, shall we say different? That's what we would say in Minnesota, right? Well, that's different. I don't think they probably said that in Athens. They're probably more, more direct. <laughs> what are you, out of your mind? This is not a, a God who dies. This is not a quality that one would normally want in a God, perhaps, namely a God that bleeds and can die at the hands of human beings. Furthermore, this God, uh, Paul, this God that Paul spoke of was not subject to human manipulations, but rather had a broad mission for all of humanity that transcended special interest groups or nations simply vying for his favor. This was no tribal God at all. Crazy? Probably. But fascinating, too. And this city was full of seekers who liked to ask questions. And Athenians always had room for more gods. So let's hear about another one. In fact, it was literally true that Athenians were searching for one more god. Namely, the god 
that they might have missed along the way. The restless feeling described here is is expressed perfectly in the story of how there came to be an altar with the inscription to to an unknown God that we read about in our text. Second uh, second sentence of the second paragraph, if you want to look it up. Around 600 B.C., Athens was devastated by a terrible, terrible plague. Athenians concluded then that they had offended one of the gods, and they were quite willing to make an offering to whatever god they had offended. The trouble was they weren't sure which god had been offended. So the council at Areopagus did what any organization does in that situation. They hired a consultant. They literally did, a man by the name of Epimenides. Epimenides quickly concluded uh, that none of Athens' known gods had been offended. How he figured that out is anybody's, anybody's guess, or whether he figured that out. So, he reasoned, it had to be an unknown god that they offended whom they somehow needed to appease. And so they eventually made a sacrifice offering on Mars Hill, where the Areopagus is located, and lo and behold, the famine ceased. So they concluded they had, in fact, appeased this unknown god. Henceforth, they built a permanent altar dedicated to an unknown god. And here is the altar at the site, which has since been... uh, when it was excavated and has since been put into a museum in Italy. I forget which, uh, which city. So when Paul is speaking to the Athenians, he recognizes this altar as a sign of their genuine interest in God and religion. They're, they're seekers. This fascination they had for an unknown God revealed something else a general sense that they still hadn't found what they were looking for, as if they somehow knew that their notion of the gods was maybe on some levels hollow and empty and had only made God a prisoner of human imagination and motives and tribal instincts, i.e. us versus them. Perhaps the one true God was still out there somewhere, a god beyond their shrines and attempts to manipulate God by offering sacrifices. Paul therefore says to them, the God who made heaven and earth does not live in shrines made by human hands, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything. That was a reference to making sacrifices at an altar. So do these people remind you of anyone today? Perhaps the many out there who are searching and still haven't found what they're looking for? Yes, of course, it's a song by the famous rock band U2. But it's a whole lot more than that. It represents, does it not, the many who believe in God in general, that's most people, but don't believe anything in particular about God, kind of like to keep all options open like the Athenians, because God is unknown to them. So they believe in a little bit of this, a little bit of that, a little New Age, a little Christianity, whatever Oprah says, a little Eastern religion thrown in it, whatever. 
But in the end, there's an emptiness. There is a sense that there is an unknown God that we haven't discovered. God is just a polyglot of images. <laughs> or does ancient Athens sound a bit like the many out there today who put their faith in the God of more earthly matters, like the stock market, or the God of social status and reputation, or the God of material possessions. And in the end, of course, it's never enough, is it? Where is the unknown God, the missing piece? Where is the real thing? To these seekers, Paul says, what you therefore worship as unknown, this I proclaim to you, the God who made the world and everything in it. He who is Lord of heaven and earth, he himself gives to all mortals life and breath and all things. So you have one God above all others. What Paul is saying is that the one and true God is far beyond the confines of our shrines and the boxes that we put God in. He made heaven and earth after all. And yet, this is the clincher, he is closer than we can imagine. So you get that? God's like way up here, beyond, transcendent, but closer than you can imagine. Wow. For Paul goes on to say that even though we may search and grope for this God, he is not far from each one of us, for in him we live and move and have our being. He's actually quoting a Greek poet there, but it's so applicable to the God that he proclaims in Christ, through whom all things were made. First chapter of John reminds us. So, it is by God's very breath and word and life that we live. As Luther made clear, the living word of God, which is Christ, speaks us into existence moment by moment. We are dependent creatures then in the most wonderful way. Our very life comes from the eternal fountain of life. As the great theologian Paul Tillich described it, God is the ground of our being. And if that all seems a little too abstract, Paul uses another analogy. And I quote, What you therefore worship as unknown, I proclaim to you. We are God's offspring. God is not, not like silver, gold, or stone. God is our parent, and we are family, all of us despite our differences. In closing, eventually, Paul gets to Jesus, doesn't he? Indeed, indeed, God is closer than you can imagine. As our gospel tells us, God became one of us, fully human, and yet fully divine, in order that God could fully know us and we could know God. If not everything about God, no. The most important thing about God, you want to know what the heart of God is? You look at Jesus, in whom the righteousness of God is crystal clear, 
in whom the righteousness of God is in fact given away to you and to me. Unknown God? I don't think so. Amen.